Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Tucson Festival of Books podcast. The Tucson Festival of Books is Tucson's gift to literature and literacy throughout the Southwest. Both the festival and this podcast are made possible by the more than 200 sponsors and 1,200 local volunteers, many of whom work all year long toward one magical weekend in March. Special thanks go out to our three presenting sponsors, the Arizona Daily Star, the University of Arizona, and Tucson Medical Center. And to all of our many sponsors and many volunteers, a huge thank you as well. Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to this Tucson Festival of Books podcast. I'm Sarah Hammond, and my guest today is Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and novelist Connie Schultz. Connie is a native of Ohio. She's a nationally syndicated columnist for Creators Syndicate and had a long career as a journalist at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, where she won the Pulitzer in 2005 for commentary. Connie is a graduate of Kent State University, where she now teaches journalism. She lives in Cleveland with her husband, Sherrod Brown, and their two rescue dogs, Franklin and Walter. Connie is the author of two memoirs entitled Life Happens and And His Lovely Wife. Her first novel, The Daughters of Erie Town, was published in June. And welcome, Connie, to this conversation, and thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It's great to hear your voice. You're welcome. So um, I grew up in rural Ohio, so your story really resonated with me. Can you give us a little synopsis of the story and a little bit about some of the characters? Sure. Where in rural Ohio did you grow up? Down around Columbus, northeast of Columbus. Oh, sure. Okay. So, yeah, you know these, you may have not been growing up on Lake Erie as I did, and as the characters in Erie Town do, but you certainly know the life. Erie Town is uh, a small working class town on the shore of Lake Erie, written by um, an author who grew up in a small town, working class town on the shore of Lake Erie. I grew up in Ashtabula. Um, Erie Town is an imaginary town, and my editor had such great advice at the very beginning. She said, you can make it a lot like Ashtabula, but don't call it Ashtabula because everyone there will tell you what you got wrong. And it was great advice because I could create the town I wanted then. But certainly it is also a tribute to the city that that grew me, the little town that, that raised me. And I wanted to focus on working class characters, particularly the women in that town, because the working class is really underrepresented in modern literature. And I know that as a virtually a lifelong fan of fiction from the earliest time I could read, and I was an early reader, I used to read fiction. And I so seldom saw people like me and the people who raised me and the adults all around me in fiction, except to be pawns or props, um, often oafish. It's been so moving to hear from so many working class the people with working class roots or who are currently in the working class who have read my book and thanked me for not depicting them as stupid, all of them thinking, sometimes it just breaks my heart. Thank you for letting us have all our teeth and good grammar. I mean, you know, the stereotypes abound, as you know. And I didn't want to romanticize the working class. We have just as many issues as any other group of people. No, no group is a monolith. But I wanted to show the richness of lives that has nothing to do with the money you make. Right. And so did some of the the people from your youth inspire these characters? They might not be modeled exactly after them, but are there elements of of Ellie and 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 the other characters that you recognize from your life? Well, certainly. I mean, uh, Ellie has the same profession as my mother did. She's a nurse's aide and Brick is a utility worker, which was was the profession of my father. In part, I use them because those are the professions I knew best in the working class. And then when Sam becomes a waitress for a while, that was the job I had before I went off 
to Kent State, like Sam. I just figured I'm creating several um, decades of in the lives of these people, and some of these things I know from having experienced it. But you know, it's interesting. As much as I thought I knew about the history of the times, I had to do so much research because you may think you know a Motown song, for example, and exactly when it came out. But that's only when you finally realized it was out and my copy editor went off and, I mean, little things <laughs> like that'd be great that they would be dancing to that Stevie Wonder song, except it didn't come out until six months later. Oh, so those okay. little things. And I, so I had to do a lot, a lot of research, which uh, frankly, I enjoyed. It brought, it gave me confidence in the writing because that's the thing I know how to do well after all these years is research, interview people. I talked to a lot of utility workers to make sure I better understood the job and nurses' aides. Of course, I've covered nurses' aides for many years. I've talked to so many of them over the years. Um, and there's a list in the book at one point that Ellie makes for her husband when she feels that he just doesn't understand what her job as a nurse's aide is about and why she loves it and why she thinks she matters maybe to people. That list is a partial list of my mother's that we found after she died. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And she had left copies for each of us, even though she never gave them to us. And it, it haunts me because I wondered, did she think we never understood why she did what she did and that right. she mattered? Right. And I think that the story, the overall story is universal, not just in northern Ohio or central Ohio, but, you know, throughout, um, you know, the middle of our country, the the rural areas. I, I Thank you for saying that. I, I'm so glad to hear that because I have been hearing from readers around the country and the book is now in its fifth printing um, and it came out in June. And the Washington Post named it yesterday as one of the top uh novels of 2020 out of a list of 50. And oh, terrific. Thank you. And I bring that up because it tells me, first of all, it was very gratifying um, to know that it's reaching readers and that readers can grow up in all different kinds of neighborhoods and cities and towns and states and still see their story or the stories of the women who preceded them. And that means a great deal to me. And the, the book opens with some unpleasant things that transpire between Brick and his father. Um, I found that really hard to read. And when I came back to the book to read it a second time to prepare for talking with you, I almost skipped over that part. Talk about that. And, and really, does Brick have any redeeming qualities? I mean, he's there throughout the book and doing stuff. And talk to you a little about Brick. Um, that I understand why it's hard. I've heard that from many readers. It was hard to write. Um, but I grew up with a history of violence in my family. And particularly my father grew up with it, too. And, and I wanted to show... Brick is problematic in many ways, but Brick works very hard not to become the inheritor of abuse and in, in terms of inflicting it on others. He has other versions of it, but he is not physically abusive. And I wanted to show the right. challenge of that because we know how easily, unfortunately, it transfers from one parent to the next to the child who then becomes that parent or spouse and inflicts it on others. So I think Brick tries harder. Um, that certainly than his father did, but he he does have his issues. But he's also a man of his times, and by that I mean no, no excusing it. I get really tired of that excuse from men. Um, mm -hmm. I think our roots are our beginnings, but they're not our excuses. And we see a very different legacy um, on the part of Sam, who refuses to accept her father's racism and rebels against it at, at quite a young age. In in part simply because she goes to a school that's half half of her classmates are black. Every right. year. And so when he is ranting and raving um, about the black employees who are now in the union with him, she is saying horrible things sometimes. She's seeing the faces of her friends. She can name them. And that changes her at a very early age in terms of her relationship with her father. 
she's very mature for her age. It's it's tough being an only child. Well, she was an only child for six years. I, I think of her as an only child because the brother's kind of a few years younger. But well, she really. Yeah. And the brother gets to be a boy. But Sam is responsible for her mother at right. a young age, which is, a you know, I, I know that experience. Well, I know it's not the way to go. Um, and I know the burden of, you know, I mean, Sam will, it, it, I don't see, even if I write a sequel, it's not the one I'm working on right now, but if I do, Sam will always struggle with not feeling responsible for taking care of everybody in her right. life because she's raised right. to be responsible at a very young age. Something else that struck me in the book, um, there's this train case that appears early and throughout. <laughs> and um I know about train cases. My grandmother used to come to visit us. She would go travel from St. Louis to Columbus on the train, and she would um, emerge from the train with her train case. Talk about that. And, and <laughs> I love that, that story. Sarah, thank you for telling me that. I, I've heard more about that train case than anything else from women. The memories it evokes um, for themselves or for their mothers and grandmothers. I wrote the prologue to the book. That it was the very last thing I wrote. And it was after a time I started to understand that this train case was not a one-off. It was going to have a life of its own in this novel. Mm -hmm. And it, it symbolizes so much. So then I thought, well, I need, I'm looking at it right now because what I did was I got on, um, I think I found it on Etsy. I needed a train case from the 1950s. I needed mm -hmm. the latches. I need to know what it looked like inside, how heavy it felt. And um, so then it became uh, uh, increasingly important to me. And uh, now whenever I look at it, I think of the novel because, and I think of Aunt Nessa buying it for Ellie. I think of the mm -hmm. lost dreams, you know, when Ellie opens up and sees the mirror and realizes her grandmother knew already that she had gotten pregnant before she right. graduated from high school. And it's, but I love hearing the stories of other women and, and some are broken dreams as well, but some are, I still have it because it was how I left on the train for college or how, I, you know, it's, right. just, it's been so moving to hear these stories. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It, it did evoke a, a lot of nice memories. So oh, I think we talked about this a, a little bit, but what would you like your readers to take away from this story? Is there a, you know, a, a couple of thoughts that you have? Well, I come at this twofold. Of course, I hope that they found the story itself, um, particularly in this time of pandemic, an escape from everything that's going on around them. I love hearing that that, that is the case for many readers. But, uh, and that this, there are stories we're telling about all women not just um, wealthy women living, uh, you know, in Manhattan, for example. Um, but the other thing is, most women don't share their stories. And right. I know this from the speeches I've given over the years, whenever the room is full of women, and if I ask at some point, how many know why you even came to this event today? How, let alone, how many know why you do what you do? And, what, and you'll see women's eyes start to tear up because women too often... We wait for the invitation to speak about ourselves. And if we wait for that invitation, a lot of us die and nobody ever knows who we really were. And because I'm lucky in that way, I'm a columnist, that I at least have an 18-year record now of what's been on my mind. Um, but even that's just a piece of me, right? I mean, we, it, that's the public part that I'm willing to reveal to the world. And I, and I, right. but there's so much about women's lives that if we know their stories, we also know more about our own stories. I had a friend tell me recently, she's got two teenage daughters now. And she said, you know, I've really struggled with my faith over the years, but I just don't feel like it's time to tell them. And I said, if you tell them, it will help them understand who they are now and who they will be later. It's okay for us to reveal the struggles because it actually helps close the distance between us and the people we love. 
That ties into, a, I, I, I marked up a paragraph at the end of chapter 14, and I want to read it, just because this is what kind of struck me um, about Ellie, the main character. Everybody changes, Ellie figured. Everybody starts out as one kind of person and ends up being somebody else. Life does that to you, just as a river has its way with a stone. Even when you don't notice it, life is rearranging you. <laughs> and that kind of fits into what you're saying. And you and I are talking in um, mid-November, um, and I think the role of women, even through this this uh, tumultuous election season we just had, is, has really changed. And I think women are moving to more to the forefront. Would you agree with I that? I would certainly, especially Black women, their role in this election. Yes. And yes. uh, women in general, and I'm looking to see now how many will be in President Joe Biden's cabinet um, right. and in top administrative roles. I love, of course, that we will have our first uh, woman in the office of vice president. And right. um, so, yes. But the thing is, it, again, I will say we cannot wait for the invitation. But this could be the beginning of something big or it could be a blip, depending on how women insist on um, a, co- a continued path of growth and inclusion in government, because we see big things. When you know, all you have to do is look at state legislatures and, and look at, for example, the amount of healthcare um, legislation that comes through, issues on childcare and families. Um, when you have more women in there, they, women think broadly. I don't believe in the topic anymore, that the issue anymore, women's issues, the concept of it. Every issue is a woman's issue because right. we care about the world too, but we are particularly adept. At, at focusing in on the families and the women who keep them running. And we are particularly adept at seeing how women often um, can be very creative and very um, productive and important in organizations, both corporate and non-corporate, but don't get the credit for their big ideas. And we need to step up. I, I talk about this a lot because I feel it so strongly at my age. I'm 63 now. And it is, mm-hmm. I must carry as I climb. I have had such Oh, I, I am so lucky, I feel, with my career and what I've been able to do. And I'm lucky to still have this forum, right, this, this chance to speak up and to, to write my ideas. And I just think we, my generation of women, I'm not saying that we have to step aside for younger women, but we must make room for them. And I, you know, my column this week was about how much I have learned from my students during this pandemic because I have them keep a pandemic journal. And mm-hmm. my goodness, the quiet acts of heroism on a regular basis, many of them like me, first in their family to go to college, responsible for younger siblings and still doing so much. So many of my female students in particular, the young women, black and white and Latina and um, Asian American, the things that they are accomplishing right now with everything else that's being demanded of them and their families, these are the stories that sustain me. And these are the people that need are just as worthy of our attention and our guidance and our support. Wow. So that leads me into a kind of another area I wanted to address with you, Connie, and that's, um, you know, you're a journalism instructor at Kent State, your alma mater. How has journalism education changed since you were a student there? And, and you've touched on that a little bit, the, the, the things that the, the students are going through now. What, what are you seeing? Yeah, for, when I was at Kent State, um, I, we didn't have very many um, professional. There are a lot of people in academia, which I'm not being critical of that at all. Right. Most of them had not spent a long time in um, journalism. Occasionally they had, but it was men and they, and, and frequently they told war stories. But I, I still yes. say Kent State, working on the daily newspaper there, the Daily Kent Stater, for three of my four years, 
really launched my career. And in that way, it's still true of student media, and student media is far more sophisticated now. But what I try to do, in part, is to learn from how I was taught and do things differently where I can. And one of them is um, I'm very much a hands-on editor. I have them revise, 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 because I want them to know, first of all, what does good editing look like as opposed to bad editing? Because we'll all have bad editors in life, some of them. And, right. But also they're workshopping one another's work and they're critiquing it because I want them to learn how to be good editors from an early mm-hmm. stage in their career. Um, because I want them to have a long view. And the biggest thing, I mean, the main reason I was willing to come back is Kent State made the pitch. You know, you're, you're ours. You won the Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. You came from the working class. And so when I walk in that classroom, and right now we're doing it all of course, online. I want them to see some some piece of themselves in my success because I had mm-hmm. no advantages except that I wanted, I knew what I wanted to do, and I worked very hard at it. And that would that would certainly describe most of my students. Well, and I think from what I'm seeing in the papers I read, there are very few people on copy desks anymore. I see a lot of typos and yep. want to get out the red pen and mark up the paper. So, yeah, that's, that's critical. It is critical. And I tell my students, I mean, we spend a lot of time on this because, and I always recommend Benjamin Dreyer's Dreyer's English, which I think is has replaced um, E.B. White's, um, now you know, Elements of Style. Yep. Elements, yeah. And I always say to them, learn the basics, learn the, the basic rules. So A, you never get dismissed by an editor because you made stupid mistakes you could have avoided. And B, so you know which rules you want to break. Make sure you really know them well first. Because um, I want them to explore their full creativity. They are so much more creative than they know often. And that's one of the things I feel is my job to do, to hold up that mirror and show them, why, why look, look what else I see in you. Look what other talents I've found in you. I need you to acknowledge this about yourself. And what do you think are the challenges today for young or maybe all journalists well, who, are, who are still working in the field? The day after the election in 2016, and I'd only been teaching there since January, the line outside my office of students ran down the hall, and many of them were not even my students, and it was triage. Because this was a, a candidate who had been calling us the enemy of the people, who had been trying to work up his rallies into mobs to attack us. And now he was president of the United States. And as I listened to so many of them that day, I was worried that they might give up or that they were thinking of it. I I had faith in them, but they, how do we do this now? The president's going to hate us. Well, well, it was very similar to Watergate, which is what got me into it. This is far more serious than Watergate, but it has made them rally because they know they have a first amendment right and they consider it to be their mission to hold government accountable. And so it's been inspiring for me to watch them. Boy, did they bounce back fast. And mm-hmm. so we've had so many interesting conversations about what is our role and what do we do when we hear the no? Because, of course, as you know, Sarah, it starts with the president and then it trickles down of to course. every local politician in the country who decides that they don't, you know, not not all, but all the ones who think they, like the president, don't have to answer questions, don't have to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, it's, it's, done, it's been such a brunt against the country and the journalists. But what I'm proud of is how many journalists have taken a stand, young and, and those who are my age or older, that, no, we will cover you. We will challenge your lies and, and, and make you accountable. So I'm encouraged by it overall. 
That's good because it's a it's a whole different world from when you and I entered entered the profession. Yeah, sure and, is. Yep. But I know there's a lot of gutsy young people out there who will carry on from from where we I started. I do feel encouraged so. by that, and they're going to help us figure out how to monetize it better online. I mean, they've got big ideas, and yes. they're going to. I, yeah. I really, it's why I feel I can teach because I mean, quite frankly, it'd be unethical for me to teach if I didn't think there was any any possibility of them having a future in journalism. But I do think they do. So what what books are you reading right now, post-election? And- well, oh, so many. Um, I, and I, I'm i careful not to name too many because I don't want to offend friends who have books coming out, right? Sure. Um, sure. I, I have a rule for myself that I read only fiction in bed um, at okay. nighttime. So I'm reading Sue Miller's Matrimony right now. Um, but mm. there are so many different <laughs> policy books I'm reading. And I, and I, keep, I keep up with periodicals. I mean, I always read the um, New Yorker, and I read the Times, and I read the mm-hmm. Post. I think I've become such a news addict beyond what I was even before yeah. um, Trump was elected. And of course, monitoring what's happening with the um, pandemic is all-consuming right now. Um, I, as I wrote last week, I mean, by the time this is up, I suspect Thanksgiving will be done. But these holidays, we've yes. got to, we've just got to cancel them in the way that we used to do them. Uh, my for my right. students, their pandemic journal entry for this week, the writing prompt is thanks. Thanks it is November two thousand twenty one. I want them to imagine what the world will look like in a year. Which, which and oh, I think I'm going to even share that prompt on Facebook, where we have all these community discussions, and maybe even on Twitter to get people. And maybe share it on Thanksgiving morning. We don't have the Thanksgiving we want, most of us, because we're, or I hope most of us, because we are taking care of one another and we have to stay safe. What is? What do you think it'll look like next year at this time? And I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort even imagining it. Absolutely. It's something to look forward to and it yeah. gives us hope. So. So you said you have another book in the works. Can you talk just a general overview of, of what you're... What well, it'll be multi-generational, again, because I really enjoy that. But it's going to not be... <laughs> it's not going to span the decades in the same way. It's um, a grandmother um, who's very active, has her own bookstore. Her husband owns a hardware store. And their do- their granddaughter in her early 20s, um, daughter of their single mom, daughter, is coming to spend a few months with them because things have just gotten out of hand at home. And, uh, and what happens in the course of it is uh, she's got to work. She chooses, I think she's probably going to end up working at the bookstore. And, uh, but she, the, the grandmother loves photographs and has all these framed photos on the wall. And the granddaughter at, at one point early in the book just points to the wall of photos. So see, grandma, your life, you got it all figured out. How did you know so soon? And her grandmother turns to her basically and says, are you under the impression that a photograph tells the whole story of anything? And, and she points, the granddaughter points to the wedding picture, the decades old wedding picture of the grandparents. She said, you met grandpa, you fell in love, you got married. And a grandmother just takes her hand and says, not my first choice. And her eyes pop wide open, of course. And then they agree that the granddaughter is going to be able to pick, I'm not sure of the number yet, but a number of photographs. And those chapters will be the backstory behind those photos. Because the grandmother will promise um, to tell her the whole story. And then she wrestles, of course, well, well, really, how much should I? But she starts thinking about everything that led to that moment. And the working title is Because You Asked. Well, Connie, as a fellow journalist, I'm I'm almost always finished an interview with this question, and I'm going to ask you the same thing. Is there something we haven't talked about that you'd like to? Tell I have me about? asked that question so many times in my career. No, you're a wonderful interviewer, and. Oh. Are you are you teaching your students uh, that yes, question? Yes, all the time. I always, actually, what I do now because they wanted more uh, chances to learn about interviewing when we're in the classroom. I actually interview students 
in front of the class. And they're always so surprised at what they're willing to tell. Um, and I said, but, but you see, the key to interviewing is sometimes listening and trusting that pregnant pause because somebody's going to fill it. Right. And if you can hold your mouth shut for just a moment, the person you're interviewing will. And then you always end it with, is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to talk about? Because sometimes that's the Ab- lead of Amen. The story. Amen. <laughs> Well, Connie, I want to thank you so much for your time. I've so looked forward to this and getting a chance to speak to you and share your story. And thanks to our listeners today. I just want to remind you that The Daughters of Erie Town is published by Random House. It's in its fifth printing. That's delightful. And be sure and and get that for your holiday giving. And thank you all for listening. Thank you so much. Take care.